Okay, so this is our continuing discussion of Simon Dong's individuation in the light of notions of form and information. Um, we're on part two, uh, chapter one, section one, and we're just towards the end of subsection one, um, starting from page 175 of the translation. Uh, so last time we we saw the beginning of of the chapter was about the this sort of three-way relationship that uh, Simon Don sees in uh, vital individuation, so the individuation of living beings. So there's uh, these three functions or three um, activities that make up vital individuation. Uh, there's differentiation and integration, which are sort of complementary activities. There's um, a living being integrates lower level organizations within its own organization, but it also differentiates them. So it, it's it, a living being is at the same time as it uh, integrates organization within it, it also differentiates itself into a lower level organization. So there's these two levels uh, or two directions of relationship between the levels of organization within a living being. And then those two activities or two functions uh, of integration and differentiation are themselves related to each other through this third function, which is a little bit mysterious, the uh, transductive function. So this function both unites and, and separates the, the, the other two functions. So the, the three together make up this um, triality of the living being. The first bit of the chapter was about the the relationship between physical individuation and vital individuation, uh, but then he almost immediately goes on to talk about psychic individuation, which is a, a further stage of the individuation process or a further level of individuation. So he's he's kind of giving us like the big picture, or or he's skipping through all the intermediate steps to get to show us the whole progression uh, and then he's going to zoom in on the intermediate steps afterwards and and look more in detail at vital individuation and so i think the last bit we saw was on how affectivity has this polar quality to it affectivity in the living being is always related to some sort of polarization of qualities like uh light and dark or hot and cold and this affectivity is always related to some sort of action in relation to this polarization so either directed towards light or away from light or towards warmth or away from warmth and so on and this polarization or polar quality of affectivity means that it uh, can give sense to something like a negativity or a lack uh, the absence of light is not just a, um, a purely negative uh, a lack of a quality but it itself has a, a quality of its own, uh, namely darkness. So it's only in relation to this kind of polarization in affectivity that you can have uh, a sense in which the the lack of one quality can be can take on the form of the presence of the opposite quality. So that's about where we left off last time. Um, and so we're going to pick up from the sentence the the fundamental type. Let me just find that. The fundamental type of vital transduction is the temporal series, which is both integrative and differentiating. The identity of a living being is composed of its temporality. An error could be made by conceiving temporality as a pure differentiation, as the necessity of an ongoing and renewed choice. Individual life is differentiation to the extent that it is integration. Here there is a complementary relation that cannot lose one of its two terms without itself ceasing to exist by transforming into a false differentiation. 
which is in reality an aesthetic activity through which, within a dissociated personality, each choice is known as a choice by way of the subject's consciousness and becomes an information to be integrated, whereas it was an energy to be differentiated. Choice is what is chosen more so than the object of the choice. The affective orientation loses its relational capacity within a being whose choice constitutes the whole relational activity, which in some sense comes to support itself through its own reactivity. The choice must be conspicuously discontinuous to represent a veritable differentiation. A continuous choice in a subject that is conscious of the fact that it chooses is in reality a mixture of choice and information. From this simultaneity and from the information results the elimination of the element of discontinuity characteristic of action. An action mixed with information by this type of recurrence actually becomes a mixed existence, simultaneously continuous and discontinuous, quantum, proceeding through abrupt leaps that introduce a reversal in consciousness. This type of action cannot end up in a variable constructive affectivity but merely in a precarious stability in which an illusion of choice is produced by a recurrence that ends in oscillations of relaxation. Relaxation differs from the constructive choice insofar as choice never links the subject back to previous states, whereas relaxation periodically relates the subject back to a neutral state that is the same as the previous neutral states. A sentiment such as that of the empty absurd, which we seek to distinguish from the mysterious absurd, precisely corresponds to this state of a return to nothingness in which each reactivity or recurrence is abolished by an absolute inactivity and absence of information. That is because in this neutral state, activity leads to an increase in the value of information and the absence of activity causes a complete lack of information. If elements of information are then presented as coming from the outside, then they are abandoned as absurd because they are without value. They are not qualified because the subject's direct affectivity no longer performs and has been replaced by a recurrence of information and action. This existence is the feature of every aestheticism. The subject in the case in the state of aestheticism is a subject that has replaced its affectivity with a reactivity of action and information according to a closed cycle that is incapable of accepting a new action or a new information. In a certain sense, aestheticism could be treated as a vicarious function of affectivity, but aestheticism destroys the recourse to affectivity by constituting a type of existence that eliminates the circumstances in which a veritable action or a veritable information could arise. The temporal series is replaced by a, a series of cyclochronic units that succeed one another without being continuous and that carry out a closure of time according to an iterative rhythm. Every artificiality that renounces the creative aspect of vital time becomes a condition of aestheticism, even if this aestheticism does not utilize the construction of the object to carry out the return of causality from action to information, and is more simply content with a recourse to an action that iteratively modifies the conditions of grasping the world. Yeah, these pages are a little bit uh, obscure. I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind when he talks about this aestheticism. It, it sounds like he's thinking of something something precise, but I'm, I'm just not familiar with what exactly that is. But to the extent that we can make sense of this, there's a, I guess, an attitude in which we have, uh, maybe we can compare this to something like existentialism, in which there's a sort of experience of the world as fundamentally absurd. And then there is the necessity for, for this pure choice, where each of the options chosen is meaningless in itself. And so the choice is a sort of choice among 
equally meaningless options. And, and in that sense, the choice is, uh, as Simondon says, it, it's, it's choosing the choice itself rather than choosing any one of those particular options. So there's this relationship between the absurdity or this experience of absurdity and uh, the way that choice uh, has this purely formal character. And um, I think this is sort of along the lines of what he's uh, describing as aestheticism, the way that this, rather than having this affective uh, relationship to the different options chosen, um, there's this purely formal relationship to the different options and to the environment. So any any option that presents itself or any um, element of the environment that would uh, perhaps be the the goal of an action or um, would be acted upon uh, presents itself as meaningless. Because of that, there's this lack of affectivity uh, or uh, th- those two, the, the lack of affectivity and the meaninglessness of the environments are sort of coordinate with each other. Uh, and so there's this uh, this form of this mode of existence, I guess, is one in which the affectivity uh, disappears and uh, is replaced by this purely formal um, choice between meaningless options. I, I think that's the big picture of what he's talking about here. And then he also um, mentions, or he, he brings up the relationship of this aestheticism to time. And so under this uh, aesthetic mode of existence or aestheticist mode of existence, each action is sort of self-contained and equally meaningless. There is no uh, underlying structure or unifying structure that that leads from one action to the next or that um, unites one action with the next one. So under this mode of existence, time takes the form of a, a series of discontinuous moments uh, rather than having some sort of unity like uh, affectivity gives to time. Uh, so when a living being has uh, that polarization that, that's characteristic of affectivity, there's some sort of permanent structure or some sort of permanent relationship between the two poles uh, and the activities that take place between those two poles. So an action is, is uh, structured by its relationship to one of those poles uh, versus the other one. And uh, succeeding actions are likewise structured by that same polarization, with, which is the, the fundamental structure of affectivity. Um, so that, that permanent structure of affectivity gives unity to the, the living being as a, a subject through time. Okay, so let's go on to the next subsection, which is a, a short one, uh, just a couple pages, but um, would someone else like to read? Subsection two, successive levels of individuation, vital, psychical, transindividual. How is the psychical, sorry, yeah, how is the psychical distinguished from the vital? According to this theory of individuation, the psychical and the vital are not distinguished as two substances or even as two parallel or superposed functions. The psychical intervenes as a slowing down of the individuation of the living. A neotenic uh, amplification of the first state of this genesis. The psyche exists when the living being does not completely become concretized and conserves an initial duality. If the living being could be entirely pacified and satisfied in itself with what is with what it is as an individuated individual within its somatic limits and through its relation to the milieu, there would be no appeal to the psyche. But instead of having the capacity to overlay and unify the duality of perception and action, it is when life becomes parallel to an ensemble 
composed by perception and action that the living being problematizes itself. All the problems of the living being cannot be resolved by the simple transductivity of regulative affectivity. When affectivity can no longer intervene as a power of resolution, when it can no longer carry out this transduction, which is an individuation perpetuated within the already individuated living being, affectivity gives up its central role in the living being and becomes situated alongside the perceptive active functions. A perceptive active problematic and an effective emotional problematic then suffuse the living being. The appeal to psychical life is like a slowing down of the living being, which cons conserves this slowing down in an extended and metastable state rich in potentials. The essential difference between simple life and the psyche consists in the fact that affectivity does not perform the same role in these two modes of existence. In life, affectivity has a regulative value. It dominates the other functions and guarantees this ongoing individuation that is life itself. In the psyche, affectivity is pressed on all sides. It poses problems instead of resolving them and leaves the problems to the perceptive active functions, the problems of the perceptive active functions unresolved. The entrance into psychical existence essentially manifests as the appearance of a new problematic which is higher and more difficult and which cannot receive any veritable solution from, the, from within the living being, properly speaking, conceived within its limits as an individuated being. Psychical life is therefore neither a prompting nor a higher rearrangement of the vital functions that continue to exist under it and with it, but a new plunge into pre-individual reality followed by a more primitive individuation. Between the life of the living being and the psyche, there is the interval of a new individuation, the vital is not a matter for the psychical. It is not necessarily taken up again and resumed by the psyche, for the vital already has its own organization, and the psyche can do nothing but disrupt it by attempting to intervene in it. A psyche that attempts to be constituted by dealing with the vital and by taking it as a matter in order to give it a form merely ends up with malformations and an illusion of functionality. Yeah, so there's, um, there's a footnote there that uh, is interesting as well. It's, I don't know if anyone has the PDF with the footnotes uh, on hand, but so what it says, I'll just sort of translate it on the fly here. But so is the footnote where he first introduces the idea of this uh, psychic individuation as a, another level of individuation. And he says, this does not mean that there are uh, merely living beings and other others that are living and thinking. Uh, it is probable that uh, animals uh, also find themselves sometimes in a psychic situation. Only these situations which lead to acts of thinking are less frequent in animals. Man having the possibilities, uh, having more extensive possibility, psychic possibilities, in particular uh, thanks to the resources of symbolism, more often uh, makes use uh, of, the psyche, of the psychism, uh, of the psyche, I guess. It is the purely vital situation that is exceptional uh, in man and for which uh, he feels uh, himself to be least prepared. But there is not there uh, something like a nature, uh, an essence that would permit to found an anthropology. Simply um, a threshold is crossed. The animal is better equipped to live than to think and man to think than to live.
but one and the other, uh, both one and the other, uh, live and think either regularly or exceptionally. Um, so, what the, that footnote I think shows uh, is, or is sort of extends the what's uh, expressed in the text itself. Um, so the psychic individuation is not um, something sort of extra added on top of uh, vital individuation. It's um, uh, a sort of, it's, it's already inherent in vital individuation, but it's um, uh, a sort of problematizing of that vital individuation. So it's uh, in the same way that vital individuation was a slowing down of uh, physical individuation in the same way uh, psychic individuation is a slowing down of, of vital individuation. So rather than um, allowing that process of individuation to uh, complete itself, it um, sort of intervenes and um, uh, prevents the completion of the, the process of vital individuation. And yeah, so Angus, um, I think that's right that... Um, so he, he characterizes this relationship, or he, he denies that the relationship between the psychic and the vital can be understood in terms of a, a matter and form relationship, so that the, the vital would be the matter and then the psyche would be the form that uh, sort of uh, is superposed on top of it. Um, and then he suggests that um, uh, any psyche that uh, attempts to... Um, impose itself on the vital in, in that way as a, a form onto a matter um, will result in um, malformations and an illusion of functioning, um, which is a little bit obscure, but um, maybe we can think of this as um, uh, a mode of existence, uh, a, a psychic mode of existence in which um, the mind would be, um, or the psyche would would be conceived as something uh, sort of uh, independent from the body um, as uh, uh, the body representing the vital individuation um, and then the mind as something independent that is sort of uh, superposed upon it. I think something along those lines is is what he has in mind here. Um, but um, yeah, it, it is a bit obscure. And I think maybe another important point to... Um, highlight here is uh, the way that psychic individuation is uh, a new individuation. Um, so it, um, it has to, in order for a living being to undergo psychic individuation, it has to um, sort of re-submerge itself into the pre-individual. It has to, um, uh, it has to draw from the pre-individual um, again. Um, so it's not just that uh, the uh, vital individuation and, and its results in the living being um, has something else added on to it. it. It has to um, sort of go back to the pre-individual and then individuate itself all over again uh, in this new way that has um, this psychic character rather than a purely vital character. Yeah, the, the this idea of superposition. Um, we yeah, can we um, characterize Spinoza's account um, of the mind as as being one like this, uh, the one that uh, Simon is criticizing here? Um, yeah, I would be a little bit 
wary of making that sort of uh, identification. Um, so on the one hand, you're right that um, there is a sort of um, the the mind for Spinoza is is sort of um, is external to um, the body or to extended, but at the same time, the mind for Spinoza is the idea of the body. So it's uh, it's integrated in some way, or it has this connection, uh, uh, which is a little bit obscure in Spinoza of being the idea of. So there's this relationship between the the body and the mind for Spinoza um, that is kind of hard to account for on his uh, on his theory because mind and, and body belong to two different uh, modes so there shouldn't be um, there shouldn't be any sort of relationship between them in the the proper sense um, but yeah so I think I would probably not make that exact uh, identification of of this this superposition um, account with Spinoza. Um, I think maybe Descartes is a better um, comparison uh, because for him, the mind-body uh, connection is much less direct. There's um, the, the mind and the body are distinct substances um, that, that have some relation to each other, but uh, one that human beings can't really grasp. Uh, it has something to do with the pineal gland, um, but uh, that's that's about all that that um, Descartes gives us. Uh, so there's this obscure relationship, but in general, there's a, a distinction, a substantial distinction. So a distinction between two different substances, um, which are the the mind and the body, for Descartes. Okay, so we can go on to the next page or so. If someone else would like to read. In fact, the veritable psyche appears when the vital functions can no longer resolve the problems posed to the living being, i.e. when this triadic structure of, per of perceptive, active, and effective functions is no longer able to be utilized. The psyche appears, or at the very least is postulated, when the living being no longer has enough, of it, enough being in itself to resolve the problems posed to it. It should not be surprising to find purely vital motivations at the basis of psychical life, but it should be noted that they exist as problems and not as guiding or determining forces. Thus, they do not exert a constructive determinism onto the psychical life that they call upon to exist. They provoke it, but do not positively condition it. The psyche appears as a new stage of the being's individuation, whose correlative in the being is an incompatibility and a decreasing supersaturation of vital dynamisms. And Outside of the being, outside the being as a limited individual, a recourse to a new charge of pre-individual reality is capable of bringing a new reality to the being. The living individuates more precociously, and it cannot individuate by being its own matter to itself, like the larva that metamorphoses by feeding off itself. The psyche expresses the vital and correlatively a certain charge of pre-individual reality. Such a conception of the rapport between vital individuation and psychical individuation leads to representing the existence of the living being as playing the role of a source for psychical individuation, but not the role of a matter relative to which the psyche would be a form. Moreover, such a conception requires the following hypothesis to be posited. Individuation does not follow a law of all or nothing. 
it can occur in a quantum way by sudden leaps in an initial stage of individuation leaves around the constituted individual associated with it a certain charge of pre-individual reality which can be can be called associated nature and which is still rich in potentials and organizable forces thus when the psychical appears there is a relation between the vital and the psychical that is not a relation of matter to form but of individuation to individuation psychical individuation is a dilation a precocious expansion of vital individuation so again we have this um idea of psychic individuation as this sort of precocious stage of of vital individuation so that it um prevents vital individuation from completing itself uh and uh so this is the sense in which um uh, psychic individuation uh doesn't condition uh so it, it serves as the basis or the source of uh vital indi- of psychic individuation but it doesn't condition it so vital individuation um poses problems that psychic individuation has to resolve but it doesn't um determine it in some sort of um direct sense um and uh i think it's also worth um highlighting again the the way that psychic individuation has to draw from uh some has to draw from the pre-individual again um so there's um so there's something uh beyond the already constituted individual um that has to be incorporated into the psychic individuation uh process so there's um uh what we would call the mind or the psyche is not um something limited to the already constituted vital individual uh living individual um it's something that incorporates um something an, a, a pre-individual aspect of the environment within itself which i think is a a very um intriguing uh idea of the mind um which um has not really been developed very much or hasn't really been taken up uh in in other um philosophy of mind or or uh philosophy in general um so yeah the question in the chat here from from Angus um is there um there's something like uh an excess of the pre-individual uh does psychic individuation result from an excess of the the pre-individual uh and and yeah making connection with bakai um I'm not sure if excess is exactly the right notion here. Um so it, it there's a um an incompletion I guess is maybe how I would put it so that the vital individuation doesn't uh run its full course it doesn't uh um uh, sort of finalize itself into a a living individual in these contexts where affectivity is not sufficient to resolve the problem um So in these particular contexts you have something like a a a second order individuation or um uh another layer of individuation that that draws from the pre-individual within the environment um um but it's it's the results of the um this uh incapacity of affectivity to uh to deal with this particular problem in this uh in this context um um so i'm not sure i don't think 
excess is exactly the right term to use for um, for the relationship between the pre-individual and psychic individuation. Um, and then the other question from T.O. So is this a reference back to the, uh, sorry, is, is this reference back to the pre-individual for the psychical different from the concept of the usia or essence or that which is essential to associate the prior to the present? I'm just trying to think back. I mean, Simon doesn't doesn't really use the term uh, essence very much or um, that, that's not sort of one of his key uh, terminology choices. But um, what we were talking about earlier in relation to the um, the the way that affectivity is necessary to uh, give unity to time uh, or unity to a subject through time and uh, in the uh, aesthetic uh, or aestheticist mode of existence, there is a, a, this lack of, of unity because there's a, a lack of affectivity. So if, if you're thinking something along those lines, I would say that yes, the, the reference back to the pre-individual uh, is different. The, the unity of time is uh, is what Simondon characterizes as a transductive unity. So it's um, or and he he describes time as the the first transduction. Um, so it's uh, it's a, a sort of process that extends itself progressively across a, a, a previously unstructured domain uh, and brings about a structuration. Uh, in the same way, you have time sort of progressively becomes. Uh, uh, structured um, so that in the way that the, the future is um, unstructured uh, and the past has a, a structure to it or a, a determination, I guess you could say, and the present serves as the the sort of limit um, across which that structuration happens. And uh, so that's the the notion of the unity of uh, of time, this transductive unity of time. But the relationship to the pre-individual is. Um, a sort of a different set of concepts. Uh, we can think of it as sort of um, orthogonal to the the flow of time, I guess, because for Simon Don, time itself is something that has a, a genesis. So it it ha- it's, um, it's something that undergoes an individuation uh, process. Um, and so we can think of the relationship between the pre-individual and the psychical as a relationship of um, something like ontological priority or fundamentalness or something like that. Uh, so the the pre-individual is the the ground for the psychical, um, but there there isn't um, something like a a time relationship between them. One isn't prior to the other in time. Um, yeah, so I hope that that sort of addresses the the question. Um, maybe we can go on to the next uh, page or so, uh, and I can read the next bit. What results from such a hypothesis is that the entrance into the path of psychical individuation forces the individual being to surpass itself. The psychical problematic, which calls upon pre-individual reality, results in functions and structures that are not achieved within the limits of the living individuated being. If the living organism is uh, sorry, if the living organism is called individual, the psychical leads to an order of transindividual reality. Indeed, the pre-individual reality associated with individuated living organisms is not segmented like them and does not have limits comparable to those of separate living individuals. When this reality is grasped within a new individuation initiated by the living being, it conserves a relation of participation that connects each psychical being to other psychical beings. The psychical is the nascent trans-individual. 
For a certain amount of time, it can appear as the pure psychical, an ultimate reality that would consist in itself. But the living cannot borrow the potentials that produce a new individuation from the associated nature without entering into an order of reality that makes it participate in an ensemble of psychical reality that which surpasses the limits of the living. Psychical reality is not self-enclosed. The psychical problematic cannot be resolved in an intra-individual way. Emergence into psychical reality is an emergence into a transitory path, since the resolution of the intra-individual psychical problematic, that of perception and that of affectivity, leads to the level of the trans-individual. The complete structures and functions resulting from the individuation of the pre-individual reality associated with the living individual are only accomplished and stabilized in the collective. Psychical life goes from the pre-individual to the collective. A psychical life that would like to be intra-individual would not be able to overcome a fundamental disparation between the perceptive problematic and the affective problematic. The psychical being, i.e. the being that achieves as completely as possible the functions of individuation by not limiting individuation to this first stage of the vital, resolves the disparation of its internal problematic to the extent that it participates in the individuation of the collective. This collective, which is a trans-individual reality obtained by the individuation of the pre-individual realities associated with the plurality of living beings, is distinguished from the pure social and from the pure inter-individual. The pure social indeed exists in, in animal societies. In order to exist, it does not require a new individuation that expands upon vital individuation. It expresses the manner in which living beings exist in society. Vital unit is literally what is directly social. Information that is attached to social structures and functions, for example, the functional differentiation of individuals in the organic interdependence of animal societies, is lacking in individuated organisms qua organisms. This society supposes as a condition of existence the structural and functional heterogeneity of different individuals in society. On the contrary, the trans-individual collective groups together homogeneous individuals. Even if these individuals present some heterogeneity, it's only to the extent that they have a basic homogeneity that they are grouped together as a collectivity and not insofar as they are complementary with respect to one another in a superior functional unity. Society and trans-individuality can also exist by being superposed in the group, just as the vital and the psychic are superposed in individual life. The collective is distinguished from the inter-individual insofar as the inter-individual does not necessitate a new individuation in the, individu in the individuals in which it is instituted, but merely a certain regime of reciprocity and exchanges that suppose analogies between intra-individual structures without challenging individual problematics. The birth of the inter-individual is progressive and does not suppose the interaction of emotion, the capacity of the individuated being to provisionally disindividuate in order to participate in a broader individuation. Inter-individuality is an exchange between individuated realities that remain in their same level of individuation and that seek in other individuals an image of their own existence, parallel to this existence. The addition of a certain coefficient of inter-individuality to a society can give the illusion of trans-individuality, but the collective only truly exists if an individuation institutes it. It is historical. Um, so he's continuing with the sort of survey that that he's uh, started previously, where where he he starts from the relationship between physical and vital individuation. Uh, then he passes almost immediately on to physical, the relationship between vital individuation and psychical individuation, 
and then he's pointing towards the next level beyond that, which is the, the trans individual. And so each of these levels of individuation um, sort of inherently leads to the next one. Uh, so there, there's not like um, uh, sort of a compartmentalization of one uh, uh, sort of isolated from the next one or something like that. Um, they, they, they lead um, through something like the inherent development of each one, uh, they lead to the next one. And so here we see um, the way that psychical individuation leads immediately into um, the, the trans individual individuation. And he distinguishes this from, from the, the social, which um, has to do with heterogeneity between different individuals. Um, so he's, I, think, I think what he's thinking of in particular is social insects, um, like bees or termites. Um, so in, in that case, you have um, differentiation of the, the insects into what are known as castes. Um, so you have uh, bees, for example, there are workers, um, and then there's the queen and, and the drones, and, um, and uh, they have um, morphological differentiation. So they, they uh, have a different form uh, of their, their bodies are different. Um, and the, the total beehive or the the total collective of um of these uh individual um differentiated uh insects um it so it, it's a it's a collectivity of uh of heterogeneous individuals um so that it's only through the combination of all of their different functions that something like a, a total form of life um arises uh so they they they're dependent on the the other um, counterparts within the hive in order to survive and reproduce and so on. Um, so that's that's a society in the specific sense Simon Don wants to wants to use it. Um, and the the trans individual, um, on the other hand, is a relation between homogeneous individuals um, or between individuals insofar as they are homogeneous. So. Within human societies, there there is some sort of differentiation between um, between different social roles, um, you know, through the division of labor and so on. Um, so there is uh, a certain respect in which human societies are are similar to insect societies um, in that they have this differentiation. But then at the same time, there's also um, a respect in which human societies are are not like those um, insect societies uh, because there's something like a, a homogeneity or a, a universality um, to human beings uh, in a way that there isn't with these insects that are specialized for one particular function within their hive. Uh, so, so the trans individual is, um, is this, uh, um, collectivity or is the level of individuation uh, in the, the collective through this homogeneity. He also distinguishes, um, so he distinguishes the, the trans individual from, from society um, and then he also distinguishes it from the inter-individual so that um, uh, an inter-individual relationship would be something that exists between already constituted individuals. Um, so there's uh, something like um, 
uh, exchange of goods between one person and, and another um, would be something inter-individual. Um, but trans the trans-individual um, level of individuation is, is precisely a, a new form of individuation. So um, in uh, forming a collectivity of this kind, there's, um, it's not just a, a gathering of already constituted individuals. There's some sort of new process of individuation that, that brings about this collectivity. Um, so we have to distinguish on the one hand, uh, the trans individual from, uh, from society. And then on the other hand, we have to distinguish it from the merely inter-individual. Um, and uh, so the, the trans individual is sort of uh, in between those two um, extremes, I guess. Uh, and then another point um, on, on the trans individual is this term disparation, um, which he introduces uh, here. Um, he doesn't really define it or anything, but he's he's talked about this a, a couple of times. Um, and I think he goes into more detail later on in this part. Um, but the... Um, the term disparation is, is taken from uh, uh, the psychology of vision, um, and uh, the it refers to the the difference in the um, uh, retinal images on the two uh, in your two eyes. Um, so, in binocular vision, um, there's a, a slightly different image which is produced on uh, each retina, um, but um, the your experience of the world is not of two separate images um but rather of uh, a single world uh, that has depth to it um so there is uh, something like a, a problem which is the the difference between these two images or the disparation between the two images and it's resolved by introducing a, a new dimension um of, of depth into uh into experience uh, or into the psychical life and um, Simon Don takes this as a, a sort of paradigm of um, how problem solving works in general. Um, and, and so problem solving is not limited to something that uh, like a, a thinking agent does, but um, we, can, we can characterize um, a process of individuation as solving a problem um, as well. There's, there's something like a, a disparation or a problem within psychical life that the trans individual solves by developing this new dimension of the collective. Um, and uh, uh, it, the, the collective overcomes the disparation or the problem that uh, inheres in psychical life. Yeah, and, uh, and Angus has posted in the chat uh, a link to uh, a story about social life in plants which which it seems to be similar to um, social life of, of insects, for example, um, in the way that there is this functional differentiation of the, the different members of a plant society. They, they differentiate themselves and, uh, and the, the group um, relies on this differentiation so that each, uh, each individual within that group um, performs a, a partial function uh, and uh, they sort of combine together to make each individual um, able to survive and reproduce itself. And I think that's 
characteristic of plant societies in general. Um, there's a, a differentiation of roles similarly to the way that there is in uh, insect societies, but um, I'm certainly not an expert on on that, on plant social life. And I think that's an area that has um, only fairly recently been uh, investigated. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool um, side of biology. According to yeah, my understanding is that the collective individuation, collectivity derives from like a psychic individuation or psychic individuation, uh, which I understand like uh, individuals, individual level, on the individual level, uh, individuation happens, I mean, takes place, and then, and then it goes to, moves to the collective individuation. So my understanding is that collectivity uh, is composed of uh, each individual's individuation, or it, it reflects, collectivity reflects uh, each individual's psychic individuation. And in this sense, collectivity of a society or community uh, shows each individual's, like, in reality, a collectivity is not like a equal level, equal amounts or equal quality of psychic individuation. What I mean is, like, each individual may contribute to forming collectivity but in in terms of the uh, power or the, the extent of uh contribution or po- the, to to the power of the or to the uh, amount of collectivity they could be different i mean that's the reality so if in in terms of uh, Vishal Foucault, like in terms of power in the society it could be totally uh, different so in terms of like the uh, Simongdonian idea, like collectivity is like uh, the old, uh, uh, the sum, sum of, or uh, how do I say, accumulation of the uh, psychic individuation. But in reality, the influence, the amount of influence of the quality influence could be different. I, I hope like my, my kind of, expl- my, my question like sounds clear. Yeah, I think I think I, I understand. Um, so the the question is, or or the I guess the observation that you're making is that within human societies, there there is a different degree of influence of uh, of particular human individuals on uh, the individuation of the collective. Um, so they they don't not all human beings have the same capacity within existing human societies to to affect the way that the collective individuation is is carried out yeah i think that's that's true um that's that's correct but i think the way simondon would understand that is um so human social formations are a mixture of all three of these concepts uh, or all three of these structures that simondon is identifying so within human groupings there there's uh one aspect that uh is uh, a society in the specific sense simodon wants to use that term in so there's a, a differentiation of roles within human group so the individuals are grouped um insofar as they're heterogeneous insofar as they have different functions or, or different activities but there's also and, and then there, there's also something like um uh, an inter-individual aspect to human groupings. So like any any group of humans um, has something like uh, exchange of goods from one 
individual to another, but it's the third kind of re- uh, the third kind of reality of the human group is the one that Simondon is interested in here. So it's it's not just a, a sort of assemblage of pre-existing individuals. Uh, and it's also not a differentiation into functional roles, but it's this new form of individuation. So uh, it's a, the way that humans undergo a further individuation process in bringing about something like the collective. So, and I think it's important here that that last line of this subsection, when he says that um, the the collective only truly exists if an in- individuation institutes it, it is historical. So the the this collective uh, or this trans individual uh, level of individuality is not something that that always exists. It's something that is brought about historically and in particular times and places. So that you have to it's it's something that has to be um, brought about through a, an active process of individuation. Uh, so given human groupings or empirically existing groups of humans don't necessarily don't necessarily have this trans individual character um, or this they aren't necessarily collectives in the specific sense Simon Dong is using that term. Yeah, so this this form of the the collective is is something that is, it's a historical accomplishment. It's something that um, requires a, an actual process of individuation to to bring it about. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, yeah, your explanation makes my my kind of like the part that I was not able to understand like clear. So the thing is that the the two two things like. One is maybe like an individual would have different kind of uh, capacity uh, from uh, by by nature, like a uh, crystal. If I if I say right, like a crystal or the the key key of the pre individuality all different, so it could make a difference of a psychic individuation. And then secondly, the 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 form or the quality of the trans individuality would be different due to the uh, different associated milieu, or due to the uh, the nature or difference of uh, nature of uh, milieus, something like that. So, I I thought of like a dice of a throw, like the the word or the human society or human community is not that all the the accumulation of the like it's not mathematics, but it, there could be something something unexpected. So that could be due to like uh, something we can't we can't like uh, calculate uh, like like a math, but it it could be uh, some kind of a uh, it, it's totally different. But the dice of through like a which it could be um, the result of a trans individuality or difference of the pre individuality something like that. Yeah, I think that the notion of the unexpected is a an important one. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, this level of the trans individual or the collective is um, precisely something that is invented or created rather than something that uh, that is sort of uh, already given. So in the same way that um, the uh, disparation of the two uh, retinal images um, requires something like a like an invention of a of a new dimension um, uh, so that you have a, a depth, an experience of the world as um, possessing depth. So, uh, in the same way, the collective individuation is a is an invention of something new, rather than rather than something uh, that is already given in what exists prior to the the collective individuation. Um, 
and and so it's it's because of that that it has to it has to sort of descend into the pre-individual first um so the we have these already constituted uh living individuals which um are also psychic individuals but they have to sort of reach back into the pre-individual and and draw on the pre-individual in order to bring about something new uh which is the the invention of the collective uh yeah the it's it's something unexpected it's it's not something that you can just sort of predict based on like adding up all of the oh sorry go ahead the uh conception that that he is sort of um rejecting here is the idea that you can sort of measure a bunch of different qualities of all the um already existing individuals and and sort of like i don't know do do like personality tests on everyone and then just sort of add up all those results and then give uh something like a a prediction of what the the collective is going to look like after that um and uh and Simondo is is rejecting that because there's something like this capacity to invent um a new collectivity uh it, it always inherent in um it's already it's already inherent in psychic individuation that that um this capacity for an invention of something beyond psychic individuation is possible yeah that that's that unpredictability or that novelty i think is a a key feature of the collective individuation thank you so much yeah thanks for the the question um that was a that was a really um insightful question i think and then there's also a question in the chat from tl again um do we think of traditions in a social group as transindividuated specific people have uh have natality the uh, non-immortality that simondo refers to uh but the traditions themselves individuate as a collective activity and seemingly transcend the physical death of the group's individual members yeah i think i think that would probably depend on which traditions in particular um are we're talking about um because certain traditions are um or certain traditions would have to do with the differentiation of society into uh different functional roles so uh a society in the the proper sense um rather than uh the collective which is this um uh homogeneity or this universality of the of um the human ind- individual um so certain traditions one example I c- I'm thinking of now is um the the caste um relationship in uh Indian society um traditionally had to do with differentiation into different um employment categories um like you'd have a caste of metal workers or a caste of um i don't know shoemakers or whatever um and uh it's so it's not it's not purely by accident that um biologists use the word caste for uh the different roles of insects in a in a hive um because there's a that same sort of differentiation uh into different functional roles uh exists in both cases in 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 insect societies and in um human societies that are differentiated in this way some of the, some traditions like um like that would would correspond to or or would be a part of a society as um as uh that in a specific sense Simondo uses that term rather than the collective but i think it's it's possible that there could be something like a tradition um a tradition that uh corresponds to the collective 
to collective activity. Um, so maybe something like that, I, I think maybe Simon Dong would see um, science as something like a, a tradition that um, that is a collective activity. Um, in science, we subordinate ourselves to the collective project of knowledge of the world. So we, we don't, to, to do science, you have to sort of, um, well, you have to make your results public for one thing. Um, um, and you have to sort of um, add to the, the collective total knowledge of uh, humanity. And um, the results of that work survive beyond the, the physical lifespan uh, or the, the vital uh, individuation of you as a, as a living being. But so if you, if you, are, if you do make a, a contribution to human knowledge, it's something that, that survives beyond you insofar as other people continue to, um, uh, continue to uh, carry out science and, and to uh, advance that, that tradition of uh, uh, human knowledge. Um, and yeah, something like an artistic movement, I think, would also fit the same uh, the same uh, idea as a, a collective activity. Um, so that um, by by um, carrying on the work of a of a, a founder or a founding group or whatever, you sort of keep alive a tradition. Um, um, as a as a collective activity, um, which is something greater than just um, a series of individual uh, entities or individual um, living beings uh, sort of added together. Yeah, and then Angus was asking about whether something like uh, the disciplinary society is a is a collective in the Simondonian sense. So yeah, it does involve the constitution of subjects, which which would be a, a process of individuation, but um, but maybe we can think of it as differentiation into functional roles and therefore inter-individual. Um, so I, I would actually say, I would, I would say therefore um, societal. Um, um, so it, yeah, it's the, the differentiation into functional roles is, is characteristic of society. Um, yeah, so something like the disciplinary society. Um, uh, so you're thinking of the, uh, uh, there's a text on uh, the, societies of control and the way that he, he characterizes disciplinary societies there uh, and drawing on Foucault. Yeah, so disciplinary societies have this um, relationship to individuals or, or they um, constitute their uh, members as individual subjects in, in this particular sense and um, in a way that um, previous and later social formations don't necessarily do. Yeah, I think um, yeah, so like Deleuze com comes up with this concept of individuals um, in in the societies of control, which would be um, something distinct from an individual um, and uh, a new uh, form of uh, social organization in which there isn't something like a, a formation of subjects in the way that there is in the disciplinary society. Yeah, I think something like the formation of subjects that, that Foucault talks about is a little bit different than the individuation that uh, Simon Don is describing. Um, so I think it would, the disciplinary society would, would correspond to um, the, the social uh, in the, the particular sense of Simon Don. So it, it's um, institutions like um, the army or um, 
uh, or the factory um, or the school and so on that, that Foucault analyzes have this this role in uh, forming a subject to fulfill a certain functional role. So they they institute certain behaviors in uh, in a subject and and form that person as a, a subject having a certain a certain relationship to those functional roles. And and so I think yeah I think that would the disciplinary society would be something that would fall under the the category of of society as Simonon uses that term rather than as collective. Okay, um, so I think we can go on to um, section two of this chapter. On so would someone else like to uh, like to read the next page or so? Life can exist without individuals being anatomically and physiologically or merely physiologically separate from one another. Let's consider the coalenterate as a type of this kind of existence in the animal kingdom. These beings are characterized by the fact that they have no general cavity. The cavity that hollows out their body and expands into more or less complicated canals is a digestive cavity. Their symmetry is radial since their organs are mirrored around the axis that passes through their mouth. The majority of coalenterates are apt to bud and form colonies. Individuals formed by this budding are called astozoids, and they can remain in communication with the initial being, which is called an ozoid because it hatches from an egg. Corals, hydroids, and gorgonians form extremely numerous colonies. However, continuous formations can appear between individuals thus constituting a solid material unity of the colony. This is what is seen in polyps joined together in a colony. The coanakin fills the spaces that separate individuals. This deposit of limestone, whether compact or spongy, deprives the polyp of its branchy form and gives it a massive aspect. Individuals will no longer appear except through their calluses, which are open on the level of the colony's shared surface. Coenosarc then joins the individuals of the same colony, giving birth to new individuals through budding and by secreting the coenochem. In certain colony formations, the individuals manifest a differentiation that winds up in some sense transforming them into organs. Some have a nutritive role, others have a defensive role, while others have a sexual role, and it could be claimed in some sense that veritable individuality is transferred to the colony if an impregnable residue of individuality didn't remain in the differentiated beings that compose the colony, namely the absence of synchronization in particular births and deaths. Temporarily, there remains a distinction between individuals that is not cancelled out by the high degree of interdependence of their complementary relations. Certainly, it could be said that in a superior organism, there are particular births and deaths of cells, but what is born and dies without synchronization in this superior animal is not the organ but the constituent of the organ elementary cell. I would like to show that the criterion that allows for the recognition of real individuality here is not the material and spatial bond or separation of beings in a society or a colony, but the possibility of life apart and of, apart and of migration outside the first biological unit. The difference between an organism and a colony is the fact that the individuals of a colony can die one after another and be replaced without jeopardizing the colony. What constitutes individuality is non-immortality. Each individual can be treated as a quantum of living existence. Conversely, the colony does not possess this quantum characteristic. In some sense, it is continuous in its development and its existence. What makes individuality remarkable is that thanatological nature. 
Because of this, it should be said that amoebae, as well as a large number of infusoria, are not strictly speaking veritable individuals. These beings are capable of regeneration by exchanging one nucleus with another being. And after a period of time, they can reproduce by dividing into two parts. Certain holothuria can also divide into a plurality of segments when conditions of life become poor, each segment afterwards reconstituting a complete unit, i.e. a holothuria similar to the previous cat entity. In this case, and properly speaking, there is no distinction between the individuals and the species. Individuals do not die, but divide. Individuality can only appear with the death of beings. Death is the correlate of individuality. The study of pre-individual life has a theoretical interest, since the passage from these pre-individual systems of existence to individual systems allows us to grasp the correlate or correlates of individuation and their biological signification. In particular, the vast domain of coelenterates co reveals a transitional zone between non-individuated life systems and totally individuated systems. The study of these mixed types makes it possible to establish valuable functional equivalences between individuated systems and non-individuated systems on the same level of biolog biological organization and in somewhat equivalent circumstances, either in the same species or from one species to another closely related species. Angus has posted some uh, explanations in the chat of some of these biological terms. Um, so th these are mostly different types of invertebrate um, organisms and then also some microorganisms. So what is interesting or, or what Simon Dong is um, pointing to with these types of, of living beings is that they, um, um, they have this... Uh, non-individuality about them so whereas um, uh, properly speaking individuated beings are born and die um, something like an amoeba um, it doesn't it's not born uh, and it doesn't die it just it's the product of a division of uh, a previous um, amoeba and it itself undergoes division in into um, uh, further amoebae um, so it's, uh, it's potentially immortal. Uh, you can have a, I mean, the existing amoeba today is the, the descendant cell from, um, amoeba, uh, whatever, however many millions and billions of years ago. Um, uh, it's just one continuous, um, stream of, of, uh, amoeba, amoeba, um, division through that. Uh, time period. Um, um, so there's, um, uh, in this sense, there's, there isn't something like an individuation of the amoeba. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, and you can also, in, in the case of um, the amoeba, there's uh, the capacity for two indivi individual uh, cells to um, fuse together or to exchange uh, material um, uh, so there's um, um, this um, sort of provisional individuation of the amoeba. Uh, it, it is only provisional, so it can always be absorbed into a, a further, um, into a, a, another individual and um, undergo differentiation into um, future individuals. So there's, there's only something like a um, a provisional or a quasi-individuation in this case, rather than um, 
uh, individuation in the proper sense of the term. Um, and we also find this in um, uh, corals where they form uh, this something like a, a colony. Um, um, so they, they um, share a circulatory system uh, between uh, you have what is in, to some extent an individual with its own mouth and uh, um, uh, it's, it's capable of um, acting in a somewhat independent manner from the rest of the colony, um, but they share a circulatory system so that the, the nutrients that one um, mouth absorbs are circulated throughout the whole colony. Uh, and um, there's also within the colony, there, there can be something like um, a differentiation of the different uh, members into um, um, something similar to um, the organs of, a, a, of an organism so that you have um, some of the individuals specialize in um, nutrition and others specialize in defending the colony um, and so on. Um, but what is what differentiates um, the, the or what what is the criterion or the sign that um, that these uh, differentiated uh, uh, individual corals are not um, are not fully um, to be identified with organs is the fact that they they live and die um, uh, independently of each other. So one one coral can uh, can die, and the the rest of the colony will um, will still survive. Um, whereas in uh, living individuals, you don't have this um, unsynchronized uh, birth and death of organs. Uh, so the um, in uh, say even something like a, a worm or something like that, uh, it has individual organs um, within its body that are formed um, as it develops and are their their development of those organs is synchronized with the development of the organism as a whole and um, and so you don't have something like the uh, unsynchronized birth and death of, of organs within an organism uh, in the way that you have uh, unsynchronized birth and death of corals within a, a colony so there's a uh, um, so you do have uh, in in organisms you have the birth and death of cells in this un, unsynchronized way, but those are um, components of the organs rather than the, the organs themselves. Uh, so this um, uh, this requires a differentiation uh, into three levels. So you have the level of the organism, the level of the organ, uh, which is preserved uh, throughout the lifespan of the the organism. And then you have the level of the cell, which uh, in which the cells uh, uh, die and are replaced uh, in in each of the organs. Um, and uh, whereas the the colony is only divided up into two levels, uh, so there's the level of the colony and the level of the the member of the colony. Um, but um, uh, and, and then the the even though the level of the members of the colony, they're uh, functionally differentiated. Um, they aren't integrated uh, through their uh, synchronization of their birth and death uh, with the lifespan of the colony in the way that the organs in an organism are. 
And I think um, one point that I think is interesting here is, is um, the way that um, um, so Simon Dome introduces this this idea or this um, assertion that um, death is the correlate of individual of individuation um, uh, of individuality. Um, but here, um, uh, this is something um, something which it, um, is completely different. It's a completely different understanding of. Um, the relationship of, between death and individuation than in Heidegger, for example. It's a completely like um, uh, biological understanding of, uh, of the role of death in individuation, um, which is uh, uh, something that Heidegger, of course, would um, reject. Uh, so I think it's, it's interesting that you have, um, in both cases, you have this relationship between death and, in, and in individuation. Um, but in a completely different uh, sense uh, or a completely different usage of that relationship. Yeah, and then there's a question in the chat um, about, uh, yeah, from TL. Um, so how do we think about the non-living part of the colony, such as the bees hive, which is integral to the formation of the hive? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I th yeah, I think, um, I think to the extent that um, something like uh um this non-living um uh element is is essential to the functioning of the the colony um i think to that extent it uh it differentiates it from uh, uh from a, a living being in the or from a, a an organism in the sense of an individual um uh so in an in an individual organism um the the functioning of that organism is dependent on the um uh the living uh oh, sorry it's like sort of a self-sustaining um living system in the sense that it uh it it doesn't um incorporate something non-living in its uh in its functioning in general um i'm thinking of maybe some exceptions to that would be um something like uh, a hermit crab, for example, that um, takes shells uh, of other organisms uh, and uh, lives inside them uh, and incorporates it into its uh, functioning. Um, but um, yeah, so maybe that's not entirely true. Um, but um, yeah, maybe we can think of it um, as, as Ali suggested in the chat, um, as something like a milieu um, so we, a living organism always has a relationship to a milieu, um, and, um, the, the bee's hive or the, the hermit crab's shell is, um, is maybe like a, a portion of that milieu, um, like the, the most immediate portion of that milieu, um, that the organism brings about itself, uh, so that it, it, uh, it uh, constructs its own milieu uh, in in that narrow sense, and uh, there's a, a sort of domain of research in biology called uh, niche construction, um, which has to do with the way that organisms um, uh, organisms modify their environment and then are in turn modified by that modified environment. Uh, 
so that uh, bees, for example, have evolved in such a way that they produce hives uh, and uh, the continued evolution of bees um, is uh, sort of presupposes an environment in which there are beehives uh, and um, uh, you know likewise you have um, uh, beavers that um, that produce uh, dams that uh, that produce um, these beaver ponds um, that they live in and uh, and so part of the environment in which beavers um, evolve is an environment in which uh, you have existing beaver dams. Um, so yeah, there, there's uh, this sort of reciprocal relationship between the organism and its environment. Yeah, so, and then T.L. has commented, um, the hive seems as much a part of the associated milieu of the individual bee as another bee is to that bee, but for the collective of the colony, it seems different in some way. Um, the So you're saying that the... Um, the relationship of one bee to the non-living environment, in the sense the uh, the um, the bee's hive, uh, is different than the uh, relationship of the um, total uh, group of bees to the hive. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's true, um, in the sense that the individual bee, um, uh, the individual bee uh, is is born and, and lives in an environment in which the hive already exists. The, the collective, whereas the collective of bees um, as a whole has to produce its own hive. Um, and um, um, so the, the individual bee um, uh, can, can have uh, the hive as a sort of um, given environment in which it, it's born and lives, um, whereas the, the collective uh, of all, or the, the society of all the bees um, doesn't have the, the hive given as a, as a part of its environment, it has to actually create it. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure what that difference, uh, um, what the sort of um, upshot of that difference is or, or what significance that difference has uh, for Simondon's theory. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Okay, um, we can probably do one more page and then uh, we'll have to end for the day. So if uh, someone else would like to um, read from, uh, where are we? The top of 182, I think. An interesting point that deserves to be noted before a general study is the following. Sexual reproduction seems most directly associated with the individual thanatological characteristic starting from this very level. Colonies of, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, coelenterates, in certain cases lay eggs that produce jellyfish. And reproduction is guaranteed by these jellyfish. But in certain cases, an entire individual detaches from the colony and will and it will lay eggs much later after having led a detached life and then die. Whereas a new colony is founded by the budding of a source individual that emerges from this egg. Thus a free individual exists having the capacity to die between two colonies capable of an indefinite development in time. Here with respect to the colonies, the individual plays a role of transductive propagation. In its birth, it 
emanates uh, from a colony and before its death, it generates the starting point for a new colony after a certain displacement and in time and space, part of a colony. It is inserted between two colonies without being integrated in either. In both its birth and its end, reach an equilibrium to the extent that it emanates from one community but engenders another. It is relation. However, such a function is very difficult to perceive on the superior and highly differentiated level because the individual in the individuated forms of life systems is in fact a mixture. Two things are taken up in it. The nature of pure individuality comparable to what is seen at work in the relation between two colonies and the nature of continuous life, which corresponds to the function of organized simultaneity, such as we see it at work in a colony. The drives of the individual and its tendencies define the distinction between these two functions that may not be represented together in the individual. The drives are indeed relative to the pure individual, insofar as the latter is what transmits vital activity through space and time. Conversely, the continuous and everyday tendencies do not possess this irreversible aspect of creative nature that the drives define through successive stinging blows which displace the constituted individual and can be in contradiction with its tendencies. Tendencies involve the common and the continuous since there can easily be a synergy between tendencies shared by a very large number of individuals, whereas drives can be more atypical insofar as they correspond to a transfer function of the individual and not to an integration into the vital community. Drives can even be seemingly devitalizing precisely because they do not belong to the everyday continuity of existence. Drives generally reveal themselves by way of their characteristic as consequences without premises. They introduce a transductive dynamism that borrows nothing from the continuity of the tendencies and that can even inhibit it. Human communities build up a whole defense system against the instinctual drives by seeking to define tendencies and drives in univocal terms as if they shared the same nature. This is where the error comes from. If tendencies and drives shared the same nature, uh, it becomes possible to distinguish the transductive characteristic from that of belonging to a society. Manifestations of the sexual drive are, for example, treated as testifying to the existence of a tendency. And then we start talking about a sexual need the development of certain societies perhaps incites the confusion of needs and tendencies in the individual, since the hyper-adaptation to communal life can be expressed by the inhibition of drives on behalf of tendencies. <laughs> it's just all semicolons. Indeed, since tendencies are continuous and therefore stable, they are able to be integrated into communal life and even constitute a means for uh, the integration of the individual which is incorporated into the community by its nutritive and defensive needs, both of which transform it into a user and a consumer. Yeah, so there's um, a couple of things in, in this um, passage that are, um, I think, noteworthy. Um, so this notion of uh, um, um, the individual as being between two colonies um, or being this intermediate um, which plays the role of the, the structural germ uh, in the case of uh, physical individuation. Um, so you have these um, colonies that um, um, from which uh, an individual is detached in the form of a, something like a jellyfish. Um, and um, uh, 
it sort of floats around and has its own existence as a, an individual. And then it uh, lays eggs that um, um, that hatch and produce um, a further, um, a new colony through budding. Um, so there's two different modes of reproduction of this uh, of these species. Um, so they can either um, reproduce through budding and uh, in their colony form, or they can reproduce through laying eggs um, in their individual form. And the individual can uh, has a, it, it's, it hatches from an egg and it floats around and does its thing for a while and then it dies. Um, um, so there's, uh, an in, there's a real individuality of this, uh, this um, uh, jellyfish form. And uh, whereas the colony uh, has this only sort of quasi-individuality um, of the um, members of the colony that are, are born and die um, independently of each other, but are otherwise um, integrated in the sense that they have a shared circulatory system and, and so on. Um, and then, so the individual, um, in, in the case of um, what Simondo here calls higher animals, uh, um, or, or higher, uh, what we can think of as um, more um, precisely individuated or, or more definitively individuated beings. Um, so in this case, the, the individual plays both roles at the same time. So there's um, um, that uh, individuality in the sense of um, 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 what exists in between the two colony stages. Um, so the, this individual that has the this, um, transductive role. Um, and then there's also um, um, something like the the colony form at the same time. Uh, so living beings uh, in this uh, in this kind of organization play both roles at the same time. And um, he he wants to distinguish um, between uh, the the two um, different notions of drives and tendencies as corresponding to um, the two roles uh, of the, the individual as the, the pure individual that exists between colony forms and um, the, the colony form of the individual. Um, and so we have um, drives, which are um, uh, relative to the pure individual, so that they have to do with this transductive uh, process. Um, and then um, tendencies, um, uh, that, uh, that would be part of the, um, colony existence or the, the everyday existence of living beings. Um, so drives have to do with, um, uh, the way that an individual serves as, um, a relay for reproduction. Um, and then, um, uh, tendencies have to do with, um, the sort of everyday existence of the organism. Um, and so, um, we have to make this distinction between the two um, um, uh, and also we also have to distinguish the, between them in the sense that they, they um, are incorporated into the group in a different way so that um, the tendencies of individuals um, can be sort of um, uh, 
coherence or or have this synergy between them. Um, um, they uh, so in in the way that we can see in, in social animals, in, including humans, we have um, this uh, um, sort of um, those those beings have uh, a tendency or, or um, some sort of predisposition towards um, living with each other and uh, cooperating and doing things together in in various ways. Um, so th that's the side of the tendencies, whereas the drives would be something that is uh, um, extra social in a way, or that is um, external to um, that social organization of those animals. Uh, and um, um, they can, um, they can uh, sometimes um, um, sort of disrupt the uh, the organization of social life and the everyday um, existence of a living being. Um, so that you can think of animals that, um, uh, like I'm thinking of salmon that swim uh, thousands of kilometers and and go upstream uh, and to reproduce and die. Um, so their their whole um, existence their their everyday existence is completely disrupted by this uh drive towards uh, uh reproduction um and um yeah so there's uh this distinction that we have to make and um uh there's a, a confusion between the two which we have to avoid um which comes about through the way that um um certain human societies is what he's thinking of here. I think um, human societies um, have some sort of um, hyper adaptation to communal life, which is uh, takes the form of a um, an inhibition of drives in favor of tendencies. So an, an inhibition of that transductive um, power or, or capacity of the individual um, in favor of that colony um, or uh, collective uh, form of the individual, sorry, I should say social form of the individual. Simone is trying to differentiate between, differentiate the drives from um, drives and tendency. So my understanding here is like a tendency is like uh, referring to, uh, it's referred to as uh, some kind of uh, something collective and then drives is something individual. But maybe like a next Next time, next week, like we can talk more because like a Freudian drives is coming up, and yeah, I think it would be good to come back to this concept. Um, because yeah, so he does mention Freud, uh, uh just below where, um, where we stopped, and uh, he's going to talk about um, Freud's theory of drives, uh, and his criticism of it, um, and uh. Yeah, so we can come back to that concept. Um, the, the only thing I would sort of say that um, is that um, collective is uh, the term that Simon Don uses specifically for that trans-individual form of uh, uh, a group. Um, whereas I think what he's um, what he has in mind uh, in connection with the tendencies is um, is more like uh, a society, like the. Uh, the colony form of the um, uh, sea lenterates, uh, so that they have this functional differentiation uh, into um, uh, different 
quasi individuals, but they uh, are sort of joined together. Um, and so they, they have only this quasi individuality. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where the tendencies are, are fall onto that side. Yeah, um, I think that's a good place to stop for today. Um, so that we, we can pick up from uh, that, uh, after that long series of semicolons on page 183, um, and we'll uh, look at this theory of, of drives and tendencies in more detail. So thank you everyone for uh, your questions and contributions and see you all next week.